If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 6 today. Mark chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this reading in the bulletin. Uh, we are continuing this series through the Gospel of Mark up to now. Uh, we've seen a whole lot of acclaim that Jesus has received and a little bit of opposition. And uh, starting in this chapter, that's going to reverse. From here on out, we're going to see much more opposition than acclaim. Things start to go south against Jesus. And we're, we're today specifically talk about that. Why did people oppose Jesus? And why will they oppose us as well? Let me read to you. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised the word of the Lord. Uh, last week on um, Monday, over half the world's population watched the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Over half the world watched it. Uh, Y'all know that I'm a little bit of an Anglophile at times, meaning I like British things and England and things like that. And so I got up at 6 a.m. and watched the funeral, as is my custom when things go on like this over there. And um, it's really, you know, it's a great service. There's a lot you could say about how amazingly filled with scripture it was and how amazingly clear the gospel was, actually, even more than I expected in the sermon. But that wasn't what struck me the most. What struck me the most is what they did as they lowered the queen's coffin into the ground under the church. There was a guy in very fancy clothing. I don't know what his title is. I'm not that much of an Anglophile. Uh, he stood there and he had this big scroll and he proclaimed in a loud voice for the last time the titles of the queen. And so he said, you know, by the grace of God, 
of Northern Ireland and United Kingdom Queen, of the Commonwealth head, the defender of the faith. And for the last time they said that and lowered her down into the ground and that was it. And I thought, wow, Jesus in the scriptures also has many titles like that. Many regal names. And think about a few of them. The Son of God. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's a big one. Um, The Son of Man. Prince of Peace. Emmanuel, which means God with us. All these great titles. But then there's one title that just kind of sticks in there like a sore thumb. Man of Sorrows. Doesn't seem to fit, does it? That's not one of the ones that Queen Elizabeth went by. Queen of the Commonwealth and Woman of Sorrows. That would have been weird had they said it. It just doesn't seem to fit, and yet the Bible's consistent. It tells us over and over again, Isaiah 53 that we read, and here in this passage this morning, Jesus came into the world to experience suffering, in particular this kind of suffering. He was rejected by men. People did not universally receive him. Some people hated him and opposed him and even plotted his murder. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected of men. Here is where it starts. In chapter 6, he goes to his hometown, Nazareth. He's rejected by his hometown friends and family. He sends out his 12 disciples to go two by two to other towns to get more work done. And he tells them that they too will be opposed and they too will be rejected some of the places that they go. And then finally we're told about old King Herod who has heard about Jesus and he's freaked out because he thinks John the Baptist who he already killed is back again to haunt him. Which is foreboding a little bit, you know, kind of foreshadowing the cross where Herod actually was one of the ones who helped get Jesus onto the cross. Here's my message this morning. Jesus suffered rejection, and if you're going to be his follower, you too will suffer rejection from people. Not just because you're weird. It's okay to be weird. You can be weird and be a Christian, right? Praise the Lord. But the suffering we're talking about today is suffering specifically because you stand with Christ. Y'all want to talk about that? Look at your bulletin. There are three things today about this kind of suffering in the passage. There's the cause of the suffering. There's the preparation for the suffering. And then there's finally the fellowship. There's the sweetness of sharing the sufferings of Christ. Let's look together, first of all, at the cause of suffering. Uh, There in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus goes back to his hometown. He goes back to Nazareth of Galilee. And so... Uh, up to now in Mark's gospel, all the stories we've read, you may not have noticed it, but all of them took place around the Sea of Galilee in the coastal towns. Nazareth's about 25, 30 miles inland. In fact, the city's up on a hill, and all around is just nothing but farmland. It was the breadbasket of Israel is what they sometimes call it, that area around Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. Uh, He served in his dad's carpenter shop, in Joseph's carpenter shop. And eventually, after Joseph had died, he took over the carpenter shop. Uh, You might not realize that Jesus was 30 years old before he ever went out preaching publicly. Uh, The first 30 years of his life, he lived as a carpenter, a part of a carpenter's family, 
building tables and chairs for folks and helping people build houses. And so when Jesus has his homecoming, you would think that when he goes back, they would be like, wow, honored son of the city. Let's give him a key to Nazareth. Let's honor him with a ceremony. Instead, when Jesus does what he always does, he goes to synagogue on the Sabbath day to keep the Sabbath, and he preaches the gospel, he preaches the word. Instead of greeting him, they oppose him strongly. Did you notice the word there in verse uh, 3? The very end of verse 3, they took offense at him. That's a strong word. In fact, the Greek word behind it is where we get our word scandalized from. It's the word scandalizo. They were scandalized by Jesus in his own hometown. Now, when you get scandalized by somebody, what does that mean? That means you're offended by them more than just a little bit. You're like, it's like puke and run type offense. When you scandalize someone, it's puke and run. Imagine that. His own hometown heard his sermon and they wanted to puke and run. They began to raise all kinds of questions about Jesus. Did you notice that? Who is he? Who, who does he think he is? Where did he learn these things? Where did he get this wisdom? Could a carpenter's calloused hands really produce miraculous works? They were skeptical. Like many people today, and this is not a new thing, we shouldn't flatter ourselves into thinking that skepticism about the supernatural is a modern phenomenon. Skepticism about the supernatural has been with us from the beginning. And here they are, skeptical. They see what they can see about Jesus with the eyes, but they refuse to accept what is unseen about Jesus. They're only believing a part of the Apostles' Creed. They, they believe he was born of Mary, but they forgot the virgin part. And they forgot the conceived by the Holy Spirit part and the Son of God part. That They didn't want to accept that because they were overly familiar with Jesus, with his work as a carpenter, and with the family that they knew living around them. And they seemed, to all, you know, for all intents and purposes, to be an ordinary family. And so they were scandalized. I want you to notice something. Verse 6. Look at verse 6. How does Jesus respond when they get scandalized? It says, verse 6, He marveled because of their unbelief. There's only a couple times in the Bible that it says Jesus marveled at something, which basically means he was shocked. And this is one of them. Jesus was shocked in a way. He, was, he marveled at the fact that his own people were so hard-hearted and unwilling to accept the supernatural dimension of his ministry, which was its primary part. They were too stubborn. They were too hard-hearted. And Jesus marveled. In other words, here's, here's the lesson. Unbelief is more than just an intellectual problem. It ain't just the fact that you don't think right and that you don't have enough evidence for your brain. Unbelief is a result of a moral problem, a character problem. Say, well, you offend me in saying that. I'm sorry. I don't intend to offend you. I only tend to speak what the Bible speaks, which is this. Mankind... 
does not receive the God who made us. We do not receive God because we are dead set in our hearts against what he stands for. That's where unbelief come from. And that is the reason why when God the Son came into the world, it was like he was entering into enemy-occupied territory. I mean, for goodness sake, God made the world. And he didn't find a welcome here among us. Uh, For goodness sake, he had picked Israel and given them the promised land, and yet when Jesus went to the promised land, they killed him. For goodness sake, he lived for 30 years in Nazareth as a perfect man. He never wronged anybody. And they puked and ran. Do you see how serious unbelief is? Do you see how marvelous it really is? We tend to think the opposite, don't we? When we see somebody who believes the Bible without any funny business, they just believe it straight up. The supernatural and everything else about it. We think, wow, that's marvelous. But Jesus looks at people that don't believe it and thinks, wow, ain't that something? How many miracles does the Son of God have to do to win his people over? How many wise things does he have to say before we say, you know what, I think this guy knows more than I do. And yet there's a prejudice working in the human heart. So that when Jesus entered the world, it was like crossing enemy lines. And so when we as his people follow him and want to line up right behind him, we are also going to be like we're living behind enemy lines. Not everybody is going to welcome us and what we believe and what we stand for with open arms. Just think about it. Even today, people, don't they have a problem with supernatural claims? I mean, don't people think we're, some people out there think we're crazy for believing that a man rose from the dead. If you, yeah, just to give you a preview of what's in the rest of the story real quick, verse 12, when the disciples went out, Jesus said, you're going to be rejected too. And then we see in verse 12, why? Because they went and proclaimed that people should repent. Do people like the R word any more today than they did back then? No, because of what it stands for. There's a whole bunch packed up into that word repent. I mean, it literally means drop everything that you think is right and come and embrace God. That's that's offensive. People aren't going to like us very much. And then there's Herod. Why, after all, did Herod take off John the Baptist's head? Do you remember the story? It's because John the Baptist had the gall to quote Scripture and tell Herod that he should not have stole his brother's wife, which is what he did. And Herod ended up putting him in prison, and she ended up pushing for his execution. These three reasons are the reasons people oppose Jesus and why they will oppose you. Supernatural claims, the claim that your life does not belong to you, but it belongs to God, and the claim that, yes, some things are wrong, and some things are right. That is an enemy message to this world. And so when we believe that and embrace that and stand with Jesus, you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready to suffer even as he suffered. Jesus said this, a, a servant is not better than his master. And so if the master gets mistreated, the servant's going to get mistreated. Or better yet, if the world hates you, 
Don't worry, it hated me before it hated you. That's a direct quote from Jesus. Amazing, isn't it? The cause of suffering, the unbelief of the human heart. Now secondly, let's look at the preparation that Jesus provides. Uh, Jesus, starting there in verse 7, is prepping his disciples to get ready to suffer. Uh, We've already noted that they're going to get sent out two by two. He tells them there are going to be some places, verse 11, that will not receive you and they will not listen to you. But when you get to those places and they don't receive you, you should not get discouraged by it, he says. He says, instead, when you leave, shake off the dust from your feet. Take, take off your sandals and shake them out as a testimony against them. Translation, don't let it get you down. Don't let it get you angry. Don't think that somehow it's your fault. Leave it in the hands of God. When people reject you, when people do not want to listen to the gospel, when people mistreat you because of your belief in the gospel, entrust yourself to God, give it to him. Now, how in the world were his disciples, who were scaredy cats, by the way, most of the time, how were they going to be ready for this? Jesus gives them, catch this, he gives them a packing list. A packing list for their trip. Uh, when you go on a trip, depending on what you're going for, it determines what, how you pack, right? I mean, you go on vacation, what do you pack? Too much. Most of us probably do. Everything, including the kitchen sink. And you're like, why do we need a kitchen sink? Well, they may not have one. I don't know. We, we bring the kitchen sink. We bring everything. We bring all kinds of recreational things. We overpack for vacation, usually. Business trip. You don't pack some of the things you pack for vacation for the business trip. You, you pack mostly business things. And, and there are things for a business trip that you would never want to pack for your vacation. You don't put your suit, usually, in your bag when you go on a vacation. No need for it. If you're a soldier being sent to the front line, how do you pack? Even more, spar- I mean, you, you pack what they tell you to pack, right? You always listen to the, you know, what, what they're saying to you. But I guarantee you, you're not packing a bathing suit and, you know, water noodles and, you know, fishing poles. I guarantee you, because your purpose is to fight. When Jesus sent his disciples out here, did you notice the packing list, verses 7 to 10? You might have thought, that's strange. Uh, It seems pretty austere. It's because Jesus is preparing them for battle. Remember, enemy-occupied territory? You're going to go out like I went out. So don't take anything but a staff, one pair of sandals, and the clothes on your back. Leave everything else behind. Don't take bread. Uh, Don't take a a backpack. Uh, Don't even take two little coins for your belt. Just your staff. Your one pair of sandals and your one pair of clothes and go depend upon the Lord as you go. What is Jesus up to here? He's teaching them to get prepared for their suffering in the same way that his father prepared him for his suffering. When Jesus was sent into the world, he left some stuff behind in heaven, didn't he? He didn't pack everything. Uh, Jesus didn't cease to be God ever, but when Jesus came into the world, he laid aside a lot of the outward glory that he had known from all eternity. He He laid aside his glory in heaven with the Father. He did not pack it. 
He came as a humble, undercover carpenter. He came as a poor boy who had to get born in a barn and literally born in a barn. He came as a a poor man who sometimes didn't even have a place to lay his head. He left his glory behind. And that was the way that God prepared him to entrust himself to, to his father in heaven so that when it came time for the cross, Jesus was ready. And so for us, Jesus prepares us. God prepares us to suffer big things for him when called upon to do so. By teaching us how to entrust the little things of our daily life to him. Think about all the opportunities you have every day to entrust yourself consciously to God. Every day when you wake up. Oh Lord, wow, the breath is still here. Praise God. Heart still beating. I would not have had that without you. My dying day has not come yet. Thank you for giving me another day. When you go to work, thank you, God. You've given this work of my hands to do to provide for my family. Thank you for giving me skills of mind and body. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to serve you and serve other people. When you sit down to a meal, you say grace or the, or the blessing and what you're, what you're supposed to be Expressing there is God. We would not have had this bread without you. And we're depending on you for the next meal and the next meal and the meal after that. It's all yours, God, and you've given it to us. When you lie down to sleep at night, God, I know I may not wake up from this bed. I hope I do. Help me to wake up. But if I don't, receive my soul at last. Those daily small habits that we have a chance to do all day long to say, God, I don't trust me, I trust you. Those are the things that build the muscle for the day, if and when it comes, that someone threatens you for your faith. You say, well, that'll never happen here. Are you sure? How can you know that? I'm sure our brothers and sisters around the world today who are being threatened for their Christian faith at one point didn't think it would happen to them either. And yet here they are. And how have they been prepared for it? Because daily they entrusted themselves to the Lord. Let me tell you a story about this. Uh, There was a Scottish pastor named John Patton in the 1800s who decided to leave his ministry in Scotland behind to move to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific region. So down there near where Australia and New Zealand are, there's these, they used to be called the New Hebrides. They're now called Vanuatu as the name of the country now. And he decided to go there, and everybody thought he was crazy because Vanuatu, or the New Hebrides, were known around the world for being a nation of cannibals. They practiced cannibalism, that they, not for fun, but for war. When they beat their enemy, they would roast them, and part, part of what they would do was eat them. They were known for that around the world. In fact, the last missionaries that had been sent from Scotland to the New Hebrides had, in fact, been eaten. That was how they died. And so when John announced what he would do, everybody tried to convince him to stay. Hey, stay in Scotland. It's a lot better here. We eat some weird stuff in Scotland, but we don't eat you. So stay here among us and, you know, 
minister among us and stay safe. And John would, take no, would not take no for an answer and ended up going there. Later, he wrote in his autobiography the reason why he decided to go. And the reason is really surprising. He says, here's why. Because I observed my father for years. My dad. For years. John's dad was not a pastor. He was not a missionary. He was not some great he-man of the faith. He was an ordinary believer. I think he was an elder in his church, but he was an ordinary believer. But John observed him day after day. Before every meal, he would go into this little pantry beside the kitchen, and he would just go by himself in there and pray for his family. And then he would come out and lead them in prayer, and then they would eat, and then after dinner, they would gather around, just read a little bit of scripture, and they would all kneel, and they would hear his dad pour his heart out before God, like cry out to God, sincerely. And John said, year after year, seeing that taught me how to entrust myself, body and soul, to God. And so when the day came and I felt like God was telling me, go to the cannibals, I said, no problem. By the way, and I, don't, I won't leave you hanging, he did not get eaten. Okay, He went there, had, had a very fruitful ministry. And y'all, today in Vanuatu, one-third of the whole population of those islands belongs to the Presbyterian Church of Vanuatu that John Patton started. One-third of the entire country belongs to that denomination. It's incredible. And it was all because his dad, who was just an ordinary farmer, just prayed and knew how to pray in the daily moments when it counted. Do not discount what seems like tiny acts of faith every day because that's where God is building your muscle. The proverbial, when the proverbial guns to your head and they say, you know, do you believe in Jesus? You're not ready for that unless you've prepared by saying, this meal came from you, Jesus. Right? If you can't even say grace, what's going to happen when the gun's there, right? If we can't entrust ourselves to God when we go to sleep, When somebody speaks all kinds of false things against us and runs your reputation through the mud because you're a believer, which could happen, you will not be ready. And so Jesus was hard on his disciples. He says, leave everything at home. Just take your staff. Just take your sandals. Just take yourself. Don't take any bread. Go to a house and, and eat whatever they put before you. Don't get greedy. Just trust me. And then when they kick you out like they kicked me out, you'll be ready. Isn't that amazing? Let's look at the third thing, the last thing today, the fellowship of suffering. The Bible says when you become a Christian, you have fellowship or communion or sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You have a friendship with Jesus in the midst of your suffering. Uh, anybody in here have, uh, maybe you have your retirement plan in stocks. Anybody have stocks? Uh, and and do, you, do you normally check the stock reports you know, day by day? Probably not a good idea to do so, especially not right now. But 
People do, right? And how much of a roller coaster is that? Right, it's, it's extreme because here's what it means to have stock in something. It means when it goes up, you go up. When it goes down, you go down, right? That's what it means, at least in that moment. Well, that's what the Bible means when it says we are united to Christ. When someone believes in Christ, what, what you get is stock in Jesus and his sufferings. Uh, Christ himself becomes yours, your Savior, your Lord. And so when you read the stock report of how Jesus suffered and what happened after he suffered, you're also reading what happens to you and what will happen to you. Now, they told me last week, or last service, Make sure I get it right. The bull market is good, right? The bear market is bad. Am I saying it right? Or the other way? I don't know. We'll go with that. Bull is good. Bear is bad. When Jesus died on the cross, it really seemed like a bear market. In fact, the disciples looked and said, man, I don't know if, is it good that we have stock in this guy? Whew. The bottom fell out. The market crashed, seemingly. What happened three days later? The bull emerged from the grave. The man of sorrows became king of kings and lord of lords, right? Right? Y'all hear it? The one who is despised and rejected of men was received into heavenly glory of his heavenly father. The stock that tanked went way up. Why is that important? Because when you read the stock report as a Christian of what happened to Jesus, that is what will happen to you in your suffering. You may go down into the depths for now, suffering with Jesus. But after your cross will also come the crown, as it did with Jesus. After your shame will also come the glory, as it did with Jesus. After your rude unwelcome that you received will come the welcome into the heavenly gates of your Father. Brothers and sisters, the market is good with Jesus. I mean, am I the only one that believes that's good news this morning? The market with Jesus is good, extraordinarily good. Uh, when Herod said, wait a minute, has John the Baptist been resurrected? He was just foreshadowing a little bit how Jesus Christ, when he died, would be resurrected. And how all the people of God in all places and times, whatever form their suffering takes, especially when they suffer on account of Jesus, is simply by that suffering building an eternal weight of glory which awaits them in the future. And therefore there is sweet friendship with Jesus Christ in the suffering. There's friendship with each other, too. As Christians, what knits our heart to Jesus is that 
he suffered for us. What knits his heart to us is that we suffer with him. And what knits our heart one to another is we suffer together in the same cause. Y'all, those of you who know me know that I'm a pretty optimistic person. I'm a pretty glass-half-full guy, and I'm not a lover of conspiracy theories. I actually don't like them very much. But I don't think you have to be a conspiracy theorist or a negative, pessimistic person to look and see that the stock of Christians in our society and culture is dropping. The chances of us facing rejection for our faith are high. And getting higher because we believe in the supernatural, because we believe that our whole lives belong not to ourselves but to God, and we believe that some things are right and some things are wrong because God said they are. Do you taste the sweetness in that? That you're walking the same path that the prophets walked, that John the Baptist walked? That Jesus Christ walked, that the apostles walked, don't you read the stock report? Jesus crashed, but was lifted on high. And so today, if we were to announce his titles as they did for Queen Elizabeth, we announce not the titles of someone being lowered into the ground, but someone who's been raised from the ground never to die again. Not only the man of sorrows, king of kings, lord of lords, ruler of kings on earth, son of God, savior of sinners, high priest. Amen?